been in a quandary all week long. I mean, a, a pretty serious one. And here's where it began. When I started studying for this message at the beginning of the week, I very quickly titled the message. I don't do that very often. Usually the title for a message comes near the end of the week. And so I, I try not to title it too early, but this week I was quick to do it. And it has left me in a quandary, almost a, an internal struggle or a battle, if you will. And let me show you why. This is the title. This came Monday morning. This is the title that I came up with. The Holy Spirit is unpredictable. The Holy Spirit is unpredictable. The quandary that, that I was just spinning out with sounded something like this in my head. Yes, the Holy Spirit is unpredictable. There are times when the, the Spirit is doing absolutely miraculous things. But those are few and far between. And so then there are these long runs of seeming stillness on the Spirit's behalf. Where it appears that the Spirit is more predictable than unpredictable. The Spirit is doing His work, but it isn't obvious to us. And so there was a point in the, the process of all of this where I found myself thinking, I don't like this title because some of the predictability or the unpredictability even can come across looking like boredom. And the word predictable oftentimes can be associated with boredom. So I was wrestling through all of this thinking, yes, there are times where we see intense adrenaline-fueled movement of the Spirit, but there are also long runs where we don't see that. And today, as I'm focusing on some of those long runs where we don't see it, I found myself flirting with the idea that there's a, a period of time, or can be a period of time, walking with the Holy Spirit that can come across as boring. And so I was wrestling with this title in a huge way and wrestling with that idea of boredom in a huge way. I'm just being honest with you. This was the process all week long. So finally, in the midst of my wrestling match, I decided to do some digging around on the idea of boredom to see if there are actually positive effects in boredom. I went to the Mayo Clinic and started searching out some of the things that they have written on it, and I am glad I did. I stumbled across some teaching from a, a doctor at Mayo in Rochester. Her name is, well, I can't pronounce it, so we'll just put it up there for you. That's her name. She's done some extensive study on this issue and done some writing. I want to share with you at least one of her articles. Here it is. Mom, Dad... I'm bored. How many parents have heard this from children? It may make parents feel like they're failing or like they need to find something for the child to do. Or it may make them simply annoyed that children seem incapable of entertaining themselves. Yet a little boredom for children and adults can be a good thing. It can stimulate creativity and problem solving while giving the brain time to recharge. Boredom is, is common with over 60% of U.S. adults reporting that they feel bored at least once a week. People's brains rarely are bored while focusing on or focused on taking part in demanding tasks like work or school or while taking part in a good conversation. 
When these activities are done, people experience fatigue and seek ways to entertain themselves and their brains. Adults read, spend time with hobbies, or tell stories to avoid boredom. Before the advent of TV and mobile devices, children overcame boredom by going outside or playing with a friend or sibling. Today, electronics capture a significant amount of people's attention, but this readily accessible medium may have swung too far in capturing people's attention. Instead of short-term relief from boredom, many people spend hours on electronics. For all that time spent, people don't necessarily feel refreshed. Rather, most people experience greater fatigue. Consuming so much time on electronics lessens the amount of bored time, but also it causes a different problem. The less people experience boredom, the less equipped the brain is to deal with it. When your brain is focused on an intense activity, it exerts a lot of energy. When you finish the activity, it returns to a default state. This is normal and the way the brain restores. This default state can be thought of as a resting state. Several interconnected brain regions are active during this time. These regions seem to act in unison as a connected network. This is referred to as the default mode network. When people are in this state, many important things are happening in the brain. It's consolidating memories and reflecting on lessons learned. The brain plays through scenarios and applies what was learned and how it could be used in the future. People spend time thinking about themselves and others. They reminisce about the past and daydream about the future. The resting state also can be a creative time, and it can lead to finding creative solutions to problems that are bothering people. For example, many people claim to come up with great solutions to problems they're grappling with while in the shower. Real quick, just a, a sampling here. How many of you do some of your best thinking in the shower? Interesting, isn't it? This is because their mind is free to wander while their body is engaged in a mindless task and captive to that task. While in the shower, the person can't escape or play a game on a phone. The brain is thinking through something almost effortlessly and often coming up with solutions to problems that have been in the back of the mind. Another example is when a person takes a nature walk. During this time, it's a safe and calming environment. Within the first five minutes, the person gradually gets used to the environment, reducing anxiety. The rest of the walk, the brain starts to rest and wander. When a new stimulus comes in, the mind identifies it but returns to a restful state. During this time, the brain is involved in creative thinking and finding interesting solutions. Don't be afraid of boredom. It's a normal part of life. Try not to dismiss or dislike it. Instead, try to view it as an opportunity to restore your brain and develop solutions to problems. Now, again, just a quick sampling. How many of you find yourself solving a lot of problems, working out a lot of things in your mind when you're out hiking in the woods? She's explaining why. Because there's this relaxing aspect to it, this distractive aspect to it. And what can come across as appearing to be a, a boring time is anything but that as your mind is resetting, as it's going back to this default place. I found some other neuroscientists that say that there is a strong need in our lives for a slowed down period that we might see or perceive as boredom because of what it does to our brain, the resetting in our brains. Well, after looking at some of those things, 
I started thinking, if that is true for our brains, how much more so for our spirits? We need some slow times in our lives. We need some periods where we're not just being pushed by adrenaline, where we're not being stretched all the time, and we can relax and work out some things. Spiritually speaking, we need some times in our lives where the Spirit can work out some things within us. We need some slow times. This morning, I want us to focus on those slow times today. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about some adrenaline-fueled times with the Spirit. You're not going to want to miss out on what we talk about next week. But I personally believe you don't want to miss out on what we're talking about today. Because the title that I started with is the title that I finished with. Here it is again. The Holy Spirit is anything but predictable. Now that's just a little twist on it. But the Holy Spirit is anything but predictable. And sometimes they're, they're fewer and farther between than the other times. There's a lot of adrenaline that gets pumped into our walk with the Lord. But then in those off times, the Spirit is still working, doing some incredible things within us. We just have to trust Him. And I want to show you what that looks like this morning. In order to do that, we're going to hang out with the Apostle Paul quite a bit. So if you brought a Bible with you, open up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Now we're going to start by looking at some adrenaline-fueled Holy Spirit moments in the Apostle Paul's life. You just watch this and even in your own mind, see if you can't count them up. Verse 1, this is right after the stoning of Stephen. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his, voice, or although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying." And he has seen a vision, or in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the walls, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. <laughs> That's really one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. Paul's doing everything that he can to preach, and he is doing it, and he's effective in his preaching, but Paul has some things that have to change within him. He still has some rough things that need to get smoothed out. So in his preaching in Jerusalem against the Hellenists, he's pushing back against them so much that now the nickel's been flipped. And Paul, the guy who was murdering Christians and wanting to bind up and arrest the Christians, well, now there's people wanting to murder him. So the disciples take him down to Caesarea by the sea. They say, why don't you just, let's go for a walk, Paul. Come with us. So they take him to Caesarea and they put him on a ship and they send him home. They send him back to Tarsus. What's what the Bible says next? No preacher likes this passage of scripture. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So Paul got out of Jerusalem and the church experienced a time of great peace. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Paul has to, every time somebody reads that passage of scripture in heaven, Paul has to think, oh, man, that was not one of the, the best times of my life. But did you see all those things the Holy Spirit was doing in his life from the original call on the road to Damascus to how the scales fell off of his eyes after he met Ananias and Ananias came and laid hands on him and Ananias had his own adrenaline-fueled experience with the Holy Spirit when he had to go back and stand face-to-face -face with the guy that was killing Christians and there was a little bit of an argument with God and then Paul rises up, he eats, he drinks and instantly he goes out he starts preaching and he starts sharing things about Jesus that he doesn't know where that comes from. These words are just coming out of his mouth and these ideas are running through his mind and he's sharing them with people and people are becoming Christians and, and he is seeing effectiveness like he has probably never experienced before. And then he has to leave under the cover of darkness. It's the second time. In Damascus, he was preaching and his own disciples had to say, we have to get you out of here, Paul. So they put him in a basket and lowered him out a window under the cover of darkness. And then in Jerusalem, the disciples have to take him to Caesarea and put him on a boat. He had to find himself saying, Lord, I don't know what's next, but this is crazy. 
this is crazy. Want to know what was next? When he got to Tarsus, he just made tents. He made tents. And he lived. He just did life. He went home. And he just did life. We find him again in Acts chapter 11. Why don't you join me there? Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. That is an incredibly important passage of Scripture. Listen to it again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, Paul was there. Paul was the one who was giving his approval and his blessing to the persecution of Stephen and the eventual martyrdom of Stephen. And so all of these people that had come to Jerusalem and were a part of the early church after Stephen lost his life, they went through what is referred to as the diaspora. They were dispersed across all the land because Saul, under the power of the Sanhedrin, was hunting down Christians. He was going to put an end to this new gospel, this new good news. So these people that had been dispersed during the great diaspora, that's who we're talking about. This is what we read in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist, also preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas was in Antioch and he was preaching and he was encouraging them. And a number of people were coming to know the Lord under Barnabas's leadership. But look what he does under Barnabas's leadership. The very next thing he does, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus. To look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is experiencing his own success. But Barnabas, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, said, I'm going to go get a partner. And he went to Tarsus to find the guy who had caused the great diaspora and bring him back to preach to the people that were dispersed under the great diaspora. That's a bold move. That's a bold move. So he went and got Saul. He brought Saul back. Saul got to preach again. If you're holding in your hands your Bible, and you have Acts chapter 9 in one hand, and in Acts chapter 11 in the other hand, just two pages, you know how much time passed between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11? Eight years. Eight years. Eight years. Saul was in Tarsus eight years. Making tents. Living life. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Honorable profession. Hardworking profession. But can you imagine the things that had to be running through his mind for eight years? Eight years Maybe you don't think the way preachers do. And so I was just sitting at my computer and, and rapidly, I mean in five, six minutes, I just came up with 10 thoughts 
that had to plague the apostles' preacher's mind. Here they are. Did I simply imagine what happened on that road? Did God really call to me? If he did, was it for that short amount of time in Jerusalem? Was that it? Who am I without the authority of the Sanhedrin behind me? Who am I if I'm not a preacher? What would Ananias think of me right now? Did I go too far with Stephen? How can I convince the disciples that I'm a different man? Is God finished with me? Where is the Holy Spirit gone? I promise you, at some point over those eight years, Saul was wrestling with questions like that in his mind. Eight years. Eight years of stillness. Eight years that could seem to a preacher to be an eternity, almost as if those eight years were lost. God's not doing anything with me. But the truth is, God was doing a lot. God was doing a lot. The Holy Spirit was moving in his life. So if you have gone through a period where you feel like God was really using you and God was really doing something, but now you're sitting on the sidelines, don't ever allow yourself to think that God has left you, that the Holy Spirit's not doing anything. Rather, I want to encourage you to recognize the fact that the Holy Spirit is doing a great work within you. If it appears to you that you're going through a period of spiritual boredom, then why don't you remember that God is reworking through the Spirit. He is reworking some things within you. As you are resting in the Spirit, He may be rewiring your brain, rewiring your soul, rewiring your spirit so that you can do the things that you need to do. The Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work. Don't let the enemy put thoughts in your mind that make their way to your heart and cause you to question whether God still loves you or not or whether he still needs you. He does. The Spirit is doing great things. It is entirely possible that during those eight years, that's when the Apostle Paul came to this understanding that he would later write to the church in Philippi. This is Philippians Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because he's a testimony to that. Eight years I sat in the shadows, but now God's using me. Now God is doing something in me. You can trust this. You can trust this. The Holy Spirit is always at work in your life. He is always at work in your life. And if you struggle in the area of trust and hearing something like that, and maybe you're in one of those down seasons, slow seasons, and you just are, are feeling bored in your faith, and you need something to help get you through it, then take a look at John chapter 14. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. This is what we read. Jesus says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I had to do some digging in the original languages to really mine some truth out of this passage. 
And so I took the word helper. It shows up twice in this passage. I took the word helper and just started looking to see exactly what that word is in the original languages. And the word helper that we see here twice comes from two different words in Greek. Here they are. It comes from para, which means alongside, and kalio, which means to call. Now, here's a good way of thinking about this with the helper aspect coming into play. When we understand that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper and we get this type of a meaning, then we, we can process it a little differently. Here's the way I do it in my mind. He is the one the Lord will call alongside us to give us assistance. That's what the Lord will do for us with the Holy Spirit. He will call him alongside us to give us assistance. Now you might wonder, what's that assistance look like? How, how will I know that that's the work of the Spirit? Well, Jesus actually called out two things in the passage that we just looked at. Maybe you saw them right at the end. There are two very specific works of the Holy Spirit that when he is operating as the helper, we can trust. They're very practical and they are very, very usable. Here they are. He will teach us all things, and he will bring to our remembrance all that Jesus said. So sometimes in those moments of quietness and stillness, the Holy Spirit is teaching, and he is reminding us of all the things that Jesus said so that those words can take root in your heart and in your mind. They can find a home there. But there's something else the Holy Spirit is doing. You find it in John chapter 16. If you want to turn there with me, you can see it. John 16. Verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now here's this other thing that the spirit will do for us. He will guide you into all truth. So certainly he's teaching us. He is reminding us of the things that Jesus said that we need to hear so that they become real to us. But oftentimes, during those moments of stillness, he is guiding us into all truth, granting us understanding that we may have never had before. I was doing some study with Charles Swindoll on this issue, so I wanted to see what he had to say about this idea of the Holy Spirit guiding us into all truth. And I am really glad I spent time with him. Take a look at what he says. If one of the Spirit's tasks is to guide us into and disclose the truth, who says that means only the truth of Scripture? 
Now, real fast, Swindoll said for the longest time, he believed that the only way to interpret this passage is that the Holy Spirit would guide us deeper into the Word of God, into Scripture. But as he explored it more and more and made a decided effort to grow in his knowledge of who the Holy Spirit is and his experiences with him, he got a deeper understanding. So he goes on to say, why couldn't it include the truth of his will or the truth about another person or the truth regarding both sides of a tough decision? Why couldn't those things be a part of what is to come which he promised to disclose to you and me. Now he goes on to illustrate that wonderfully with this type of teaching. Haven't you struggled with a decision? The more you wrestled, the greater the struggle. In the beginning, you felt as if you were standing in a thick, dark cloud. Then gradually the fog lifted and you could see your way through. I'm suggesting that such can be traced to the Spirit's work of revealing. Revealing to us all truth. So sometimes when we're in the midst of conflict and that conflict is raging, I mean raging within us, and it may be conflict with somebody else, if we will push pause on it and allow the Spirit to really go to work, we may find clarity that we could never find otherwise. Now here's the, the really good part about that. That clarity may be about us, but it also may be about the other person. And so we get this clarity that lifts a fog so that we can effectively make decisions that will honor the Lord. But sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes time. So the Spirit allows us that. He gives us that time. Boy, that can be tough for us, though, because we live in a world that's moving like this. We want to make rapid decisions. We don't want to think about anything for more than two or three minutes and then make a decision. That's the way I, I operate. I want to make fast decisions. Sometimes they're wrong, and i got to clean them up afterwards. But I still make fast decisions. And so when the Holy Spirit says, you got to slow down, and you got to work through this, it can be very difficult for me. And it's a place of trust. And I know for a lot of other people it is too. So in those moments where you find yourself thinking the Holy Spirit is doing absolutely nothing, I want to encourage you to put a pin in that thought. Just put a pin in it and recognize that you're wrong. The Holy Spirit is doing a lot, even in the midst of quietness and stillness. And so once you put a pin in that thought that the Holy Spirit is doing nothing, then I want to encourage you to think at a much deeper level of what the Spirit is doing. I'll show you what I'm talking about. We're headed towards the end of the message, so stay with me. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now there's a whole lot about that passage that sounds super churchy. It sounds super biblical and it can be hard to understand. So I want to break it down just real fast for you. Here's a way of outlining this passage in regard to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. Take a look. He is searching the secret and hidden wisdom of God. That's chapter 2, verse 7. He is revealing the wonderful and deep things that God has for us. That's chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And he is helping us understand what God has freely given us. That's verse 12. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in those quiet, still times. He's revealing things to you. If you will open your heart and open your mind, the Holy Spirit is revealing things to you that fit in this category, the deep things of God. Isn't that incredible? And here Paul's saying, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking to the mature because you have the Holy Spirit in your life who is showing you the deep things of God. Just listen. Just listen and receive. And when you do, when you choose to understand this about the Holy Spirit and you choose to develop this type of relationship with the Holy Spirit, something incredible happens. You become bound to the Spirit. You become bound in the Spirit. Now, that's a unique expression. It comes directly from the Bible, and I want to show it to you. Now, you have to go to Acts chapter 20 to see it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. The English Standard Version uses a different term than bound in the Spirit. However, they footnote exactly what they need to. This is Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 22. I'm not going to read very much out of the ESV. We're going to switch translations in just a minute. Verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. There's a footnote connotation in my Bible. It takes you right to the bottom of the page. The bottom of the page, it says, or bound in. Editors struggle and translators struggle with the idea of bound in the spirit and so they use different terms and you can jump a bunch of translations and find a different term but the the actual literal term is bound in the spirit I want you to look at it from the new King James version here it is and see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That whole idea of being bound in the Spirit, Paul would actually take it to mean something like this. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know. I don't have that ability. But I am bound in the Spirit to travel with Him. To go where He leads. And I know that there's going to be some hardship along the way. I'll face that hardship because I am bound 
in the Spirit. We are one. We are together. I am bound in the Spirit. I have developed this relationship with the Holy Spirit. I wasn't going to do this and, and actually decided to with the guys that I pray with on Sunday mornings. So here you go. Just give me 30 seconds. When you become a Christian, you are filled with the Spirit. We are taught to walk in the Spirit. That's the process of discipleship. So you are filled with the Spirit. You have all of the Holy Spirit. But there are a lot of Christians who never get to know the Holy Spirit. He remains the mysterious member of the Trinity. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have access to all that God has, the deep things of God, through the Holy Spirit. Then in discipleship, you are taught to walk in the Spirit. Get to know him more and more and more and more and more and more until you come to the point where you are bound in the spirit, which means there's no separation all the way to the end, all the way to the end, no matter what that means, bound in the spirit all the way to the end. Man, that's the, the process that every one of us should want to get to that place where we are bound in the spirit all the way to the end, no matter what. Good, bad, no matter what. Bound in the Spirit. I'm bound in the Spirit. The only way that we can do that is by embracing periods of stillness. Embracing periods of quiet that may even border on boredom. But trusting that the Holy Spirit is doing His work. We just have to give Him time to do it. He's teaching and He is revealing. He is searching and bringing things to us. So make yourself open. Make yourself open. But it requires, it requires a spiritual discipline of stillness on our part too. I'll just be completely honest with you. That's one of the hardest ones for me. The spiritual discipline of stillness is hard. But it is a discipline. Taught in places like this, Psalm chapter 46, verse 10, the very first part of it. David says, be still and know that I am God. That's the biblical discipline of stillness. I'm going to be still. And I'm going to trust God and the work of the Holy Spirit. In order to understand that, let me show you something that popped up on my computer screen this week. A friend of mine named Doug, who lives in Wisconsin, posted this. And man, I'm glad he did. Because in the midst of studying for this message, it just rang true for me. Here it is. There are times when alone is the best place to be because it's there that we ponder things. Doug, when he posted this, wrote above it on his page, spent a lot of time pondering things. Doug's a guy who loves the backcountry, pondering things. When I look at this picture and look into the face of that man, I can't help but wonder, what, what's he thinking about? What's he thinking about? Is he thinking about himself? Is he thinking about other people? What's he thinking about? Is he working out problems? Is he figuring out solutions? What's he thinking about? Now, it's funny. When Beth saw this, she actually wrote back to me and said, he's not alone. He's surrounded by friends. I'm a dog guy and a horse guy, and I missed that. I missed that. But still, as you look at his face, there's a curious thing. I want to believe that he's a Christian. And right there on the tailgate of that pickup, he and the Holy Spirit are together. And the Holy Spirit is searching out the deep things of God and revealing them to him. Solutions are coming. The fog is lifting. And when the fog lifts, 
You're about to see movement of the Spirit. Don't run from moments of stillness. Don't be afraid of moments that even seem to border on boredom. The Holy Spirit's at work. Trust Him. Trust Him. Why don't you stand and we'll pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your lack of predictability. Sometimes, Lord, it it just seems like you've got the foot on the gas and we have to keep up. But other times it seems like you've pulled the emergency brake and we have to stop. But it's not always that your will and our will are parallel. And sometimes there's conflict in that. And sometimes, Lord, we want you to reveal things to us faster than they come. But in faith, we have to trust your timing. And I pray we will, Lord, bound in you. I pray we will. I know we have folks here today that are working some things out. And they need your help. I pray that they'll find it today. Lord, if they need to boldly take one more step and pray with somebody else about it, I pray they will. Sometimes I know that's all it takes for your spirit to move. And so I pray they will. But Lord, I pray that each one of us will develop a desire to know the Holy Spirit more than we did yesterday. And I pray that that will continue until we are bound in the spirit. Never to be separated. Asking it in Jesus' name. Amen.